0: welcome to the bloomberg surveillance podcast i'm tom Keane. daily we bring you insight from the best in economics finance investment and international relations find bloomberg surveillance on apple podcasts soundcloud bloomberg.com and of course on the bloomberg carl weinberg joins us now to reframe the growth debate uh, this morning carl um do you do you take the entire high frequency economics view and ratchet it down where are you now for global growth and US growth
1: Well, U.S. growth, we think the U.S. economy is doing well enough in domestic demand to outweigh the slowdown in world trade, the contraction of world trade that we're actually seeing. Give me some numbers. Well, we're talking about world trade being down about half a percent year over year, world global exports, and that's uh, only happened five times before in the last 50 years, so it's a (laughs) uh, a notable event. U.S. GDP growth around 2.2, 2.3 percent, largely driven by domestic Mm -hmm. demand with exports being weak. Europe, dead flat right now. but. The trend. What's your
0: global number? I was stunned in Davos how people are, some of them are framing under 3% global real economic growth folks that is unusual to say the least
1: yeah the I, the uh, imf has i think 2.9 and that's a big markdown but they have a boom going right back up in the next uh, forecast period in 2021 uh, right back up to uh, 3.3 3.4% which is still a low number but uh, not a, a t- as terrifying as 2.9 and of course what i say is when i every time i read an imf forecast for an economic recovery i say to myself you know on a basis of what you know what's going to drive the world economy back and it's not going to be monetary policy it's not going to be fiscal policy so I guess it's just going to be animal spirits and of course missing from Davos was any explanation at all for the decline in world trade none so if you can't tell me why it's happening and I can't tell you why it's happening how can you tell me that it's over so I'm on the gloomy side Tom for the world well let's economy. talk
2: about how fragile the recovery actually is then Carl and whether something like what we see at the moment playing out in China can really knock
1: us off course Well, if it turns into a big thing, it could knock us off course. But when I listen to to Lisa run down her argument, I have to say to her, you you know, I don't know. Now, I don't know anything about this disease. Nobody does. Nobody knows the extent to it. Nobody knows how far it's going to go. So we can't do that. But if it got to be really serious, all right, or let's look at the changes in, uh, in the, that the government has introduced, okay? So they've extended the holiday period now to February 2nd. So they've shut down the Friday after a 10-day holiday break where very few people were going to come back to work anyhow, and where a lot of firms weren't going to reopen anyhow, and then a weekend. So we really don't have a big dent to production. And of course, what what we've learned in the past is when we have disasters and things like this, not only does the economy snap back quickly in the subsequent quarters, yeah. but the loss of output is less than you expect because a lot of the economy continues to to, to act to be active, even though people aren't at work. We make utilities, we buy food, you know, the, the trains still run and so forth. In this case, the trains may not run. But the point being that the hit may be smaller than the market is currently pricing in. I say maybe because maybe tomorrow we'll have some serious medicine that says this This is the scariest thing since, uh, what were you talking about before Tom, the 1918 flu epidemic. Maybe we'll get and some I'm the sun. only
0: one in the room who was around for it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Black plague. But for the moment, we just don't know the extent of it. So I like Lisa's hypothesis that says that people are ready to take profits. Anyhow, this catalyzes it. But I can't make myself jump into the camp that says, this is the end of world trade. Now, if China gets locked down for a month, that's a different story. That's a big hit to the sure, world Sure, Carl. I don't think
2: anyone's sitting around this table saying, this is the end of world trade. I think you're focusing on the right thing. No one around this table is going to pretend to be a doctor over the next several months or for however long this plays out. What you focus on is the potential disruption to cities and the measures that the Chinese will take to stop this epidemic from spreading. And what we see so far are major cities effectively shutting down, banning travel. We see holidays being extended. And as you point out quite rightly, it's the traditional time of the year where that happens anyway. It might just go on for a little bit longer. Walk us through, our audience, what they should be focused on in the coming weeks. Not pretending to be a doctor, looking at the economics of all of this
1: so let's be an economist so Wuhan is a city of 11 million people it's bigger than New York it's bigger than London it's bigger than Paris it's bigger than pretty much any other city except for others in China but in a country of 1.4 billion people all right it is a piece of a much larger puzzle right Shanghai is a bigger deal but they're not shutting down although there are sporadic reports of some companies uh, not coming back to work so with Wuhan by itself in Hubei which is 60 million people roughly the population of France still within a 1.4 billion person economy. It will make a dent, but will it derail the economy and throw it into a recession? I don't think so.
3: In 2003, the SARS outbreak uh, caused the estimated uh, decline in the GDP uh, of China of about 1%. In and
1: the qu- in one quarter. In one quarter,
3: right. a 1% decline in GDP.
1: And then it got back the next quarter. If you look at the four quarters from the fourth quarter of 2002 to the third quarter of 2003, there's no discernible deviation of the pattern of GDP from what the seasonal suggests.
3: To be clear, 800 people died, more than that. It was much more virulent than what we are currently experiencing. Of course, we don't know how this is going to involve. If it transpires in the same way, do you think that it could materially throw the global economic recovery off course?
1: I'll just be, you know, very crass about it. 800 deaths, all right, is not going to throw the world economy off course. All right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a tragedy for the people involved. But at the end of the day, and I'm not yeah. a doctor, I don't play one on TV. But Carl, we should but emphasize. But you look like it's, Carl, it's
2: not about how many people die. It's the measures the Chinese take to stop people from right. dying.
1: And shutting down Wuhan is ex- an exceptional which sounds and measure, brutal. And it sounds brutal. brutal. from the economist's
2: perspective, that's where the focus is.
1: Right. And my focus is that, that Wuhan is a big city, but in the scope of all of China and all of the world, mm-hmm. okay, I don't think it's enough to throw no. the train off the track.
0: Uh, Carl Weinberg, thank you so much with High Frequency Economics. And, you know, Drew Armstrong was just brilliant this morning with Max Neeson as well. We have tried to bring you perspective on the virus in Wuhan. We've had some wonderful comments from China. China this morning, from a news standpoint, really shut down with the holidays and all that. So we've gone global with Drew Armstrong and Mac Neeson. And right now from Geneva, Switzerland, our single best World Health Organization expert, Tom Milliard, joins us. Uh, this morning. What are they doing at the World Health Organization today, not only in Geneva, Tom, but spread out across their world? What's their to-do list in the Geneva afternoon?
4: Well, um, the head of the WHO right now is actually in China, in Wuhan, at Ground Zero. Uh, meeting with people and uh, I mean showing that he's uh, this is the top of the agenda right now. Uh, the biggest thing is collecting data to be able to map yeah. out the spread of the epidemic. What they really need is data, not just on when the cases were reported but data on when the symptoms, the onset of the symptoms started, uh, and they need more complete data because any change in the number of reported cases or the number of deaths changes the mortality rate.
0: Do Do we know the virology of the virus? My experience is they mutate, et cetera, and it's really hard to actually know what you're talking about. Do we have a handle on what the actual virus is? Not
4: exactly. That's what they're still trying to do because I mean, in order to make any sort of treatment for the virus, they need to understand it um, more better.
3: Thomas, there's also a question about the reaction in China. One of the most alarming reports that really got markets in jitters was this idea that China doesn't have enough equipment, isn't necessarily separating out patients with the coronavirus from other patients in hospitals just because they don't have the space. How? effective has the containment process been in China, you know, regardless of the quarantine that's keeping an entire city in their homes?
4: Yeah, well, there's a lot of criticism about the policy, because it could be that it just is too late. Uh, and I mean, it's such a, a draconian policy, uh, keeping 50 million people in, the, in their places, uh, that it, it, it's raising a lot of issue. I mean, there's a lot of issues there. Um so far, they—they they, uh, well, China is, uh, is is trying to actually build new hospitals as we speak in Wuhan, uh, and so it's really a game of catch-up, and and they don't have the facilities uh, uh, that they that they ideally would have at the moment.
2: Thomas, you know better than we do about the WHO, and there is some criticism of the World Health Organization at the moment, and their reluctance to declare what we're seeing playing out in China and worldwide at the moment is a public health emergency of international concern. Thomas why are they holding off one and two what would happen if they do make that declaration this week?
4: well, it's, uh, they've said that they, they might, uh, decide, I mean, when they d- made, delayed uh, making the decision, they said that they'd probably meet again within the next 10 days. The thing is, it's a really political process, uh, the WHO deal better with the scientific side of things, and what they're scared of is that, uh, countries if they declare it uh, uh, an international public health emergency, that some countries might enact uh, barriers to travel and trade that are more stringent than necessary.
3: Right now, I'm wondering about the efficacy of other countries' response to this virus. In other words, is there any evidence uh, that the spread of it to a number of different nations around the world is actually causing intercountry? country spreading person-to-person, not within China, but, say, in Vietnam or so, in South Korea?
4: Yeah, so far the evidence is, is really limited. Uh, of, of, of the 30-some cases that have been, uh, the 30 uh, cases uh, reported abroad, uh, almost all of those were actually people who had been in Wuhan And so, Mm -hmm. so far, there really isn't evidence that it's really going person to person outside of China.
0: Tom, thank you so much. Tom Mullane with Bloomberg News in Geneva, Switzerland, and with his true focus on the World Health Organization. Right now joining us with Society General Kit Jukes uh, joins us on these strong correlations of the market. Kit, I'm observing that. How correlated is this move off a Chinese uh, disease, uh, Chinese uh, virus?
5: Uh, it feels pretty correlated. It felt this morning as if it was just a, a single story, stocks down, um, yeah. uh, safe haven currency strong, anything trade, China sensitive or oil sensitive. Um, weaker equities moving in the same way. We'll we'll see what happens when your equity market really gets going in in cash terms this afternoon, but it feels as if it's a knee-jerk reaction that's not correcting at the moment
0: within that the bond market where we're back to october lows john you'll know better than me on this in terms of spread dynamics as well is there an opportunity in bonds because you've made if you believe in low interest rates you've made so much of a year's move in a matter of days and weeks i I mean how do you adjust tactically to the celebration of a year's move
5: (laughs) uh you you remain bullish, but you don't go and invest your entire life savings right in them right there's getting. instant i guess i look i think we'll get ten year note yields back down to um certainly the other side of one and a half percent at some point at the back end of this year but um you know then if you think that we're gonna move from you know to from to, i don't know you know one and a quarter to one and three quarters instead of one and three quarters to two then then you know we we've got another Leg down, but we've done half the move, and that's probably the way to think about it. But 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 it'll take evidence in the United States that um, that the economy is is feeling this. Otherwise, you know, we're going to see money continue to go looking for certainly lower rates, lower yields in the sort of in some some of the markets in, in, in the Far East um, because growth is going to be definitely impacted. We can speculate how much this might affect the U.S., but the Chinese economy is going to is going to feel this for a while, um, and I think it also probably puts paid to hopes of some people that you might get German government bond yields, 10-year yields back into positive territory or anything like that. We're going to be stuck in negative territory for months.
2: Well, let's talk about it, Kit, because this is important. The recovery that we have seen, very young, very fragile. And we see it in the EFO out of Germany today. German business confidence, really not terrific. Just how fragile is that recovery in Europe? And is it vulnerable to being knocked off course by what you see playing out in China right now, Kit?
5: Yeah, yes. I mean, you know, if, if, again, at the bare minimum, we're going to lose a certain amount of time. You know, it, it could be a short period of time and, and then things get more it's back to normal. And the Chinese are more likely to ease monetary policy, more likely to ease fiscal policy on, on the back of this over time. But um, you know, the, the momentum was just trying to shift back towards Germany getting away from the hits from trade, from Chinese weakness, from from the auto um, downturn, and, and from the from the diesel scandal, and, and all of those things were sort of trying to feed themselves through the system.
3: It's just going to take longer to get out of that now, and I think that's um, that that puts a, a dampener on on everything. Kit. It's also this whole uh, transpiring of the coronavirus and its spread is putting a damper on the whole weaker dollar story. And we're seeing the dollar the strongest since December 9th, uh, three straight days of strengthening, emerging market currencies having a bigger three-day decline since November. How much does this potentially torpedo the consensus bet heading into 2020 that emerging market currencies would finally outperform in a significant way this year? Um.
5: we've been nervous about the outlook for emerging market currencies this year because we've got a uh, a, a relatively gloomy view about how the year is going to progress for the U.S. economy. Emerging markets to to get money really flowing into them need a combination of of, of yield seeking. So low rate environment plus a kind of U.S. economy that does okay, that kind of grows something like a consensus of 1.8% this year. Um, This This sort of ups the ante on the U.S. piece. In other words, emerging markets are going to have a really rough time if the U.S. economy looks as if it's growing significantly more slowly than that, as well, you know, and that'll offset any of this kind of flow in. So uh, I think, I mean, to me, the jury was out in the sense of the market was taking an optimistic view of the global economic outlook this year. Uh, and that was feeding into a bit of relief for EM. But I think that's in, in trouble now.
0: You get to our boom-bust debate at Davos that we had. And John and I, of course, will drive this forward in the coming days uh, and weeks here as well. Into what we see this morning, a 2-3% equity correction yields where they are, two-year yield, 1.4470. Can you hedge now? Is it is it efficacious to sit around a pro room and actually structure hedges? Where you either take in a premium or you pay out for the cost of doing the hedge.
5: Um, yeah, yes, it, it seems to me wise to take to take some hedges at, at this point because risk assets you know, might be correcting today, but they're still pr- pretty expensive, um, and you know, and in a sense, I mean, the the, part the, the high correlations mean that. You know the, the kind of the, the hedges become almost simpler in the sense that I, you know, someone's got to show me what he- clever hedging looks like in this environment. But I would certainly want to have bonds in my portfolio for this for this risk for this danger. I would want government debt interest rate exposure. Um, I wouldn't want a currency portfolio that had no Japanese yen in it, even if um, I've been very frustrated for the whole of January so far. You know, I, I would want to continue to have those things because, um, and um, you know, the, at the end of the day, though, you know, the, the reason that we've kind of feel as if the cycle is less less significant is that the answer to everything is to ease monetary policy even further and that gets equity markets to stabilize spreads to stabilize gets defaults are harder to manage at really low rates and so we we stretch the cycle out and so the danger then comes back into the danger in those valuations directly
0: and indirectly john that was the theme we heard at davos it's just so easy to cut rates you know it's it to be trumpian Into cut rates.
2: It gets harder when you start to run out of space. That's for sure. And the ECB has run out of space. Let's talk about Italy, shall we? Kit ten-year Italian bond yields down eighteen basis points, and the euro doing nothing. Why?
5: Um, But the euro, once upon a time, once upon a time we had models where we put BTP bund spreads into into the euro and so it would have it higher I, I don't think that that works when the heart of the euro uh is, is that it's much more trade sensitive than the united states much more it's more china sensitive than the united states so it's bad news for europe so we're we're weighing these two things against each other of you know a piece of news from the far east that definitely is euro dollar negative against a piece of domestic news in italy that that at least in terms of the bond market reaction is euro positive and look at the 13 basis point fall in greek yields by the way as they have a re-rating, so yeah. um, and, and those two outweigh each other. So you 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 trade you trade European politics at the moment um, in the bond market, uh, and, and that's that's where that's where you yeah. do. It. In the I think in the currency market, you go short the euro against the yen, or, or short the euro against the Swiss franc, but not you don't right. you don't you, know, you don't buy it. I'm afraid.
0: Kit Jukes, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With Society General. Why don't you bring in Ian? Or do you want to get football out of the way first? I think we should probably
2: Ian? do that first, shouldn't we? Yeah, I imagine you know, that's what he's fired up about. Yeah, Ian Shepherdson, Pantheon Macroeconomics founder and chief economist, also of Newcastle. I can tell you, very exclusive on this program a couple of months back, that Ian gave up his season ticket to his beloved Newcastle United. And the latest news coming out of the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that the Saudis are interested in buying his beloved Newcastle United. First reaction, Ian Shepherdson, please.
6: Uh, my first reaction is out of the frying pan into the fire, really. You know, we're going to potentially exchange one terrible owner for. Another, uh, which is backed by a man of, shall we say, questionable character. So I'm not thrilled.
0: You're not thrilled. There's a character to this, folks, for our American audience, Newcastle. It, 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 it's, a, it's fun to watch. It's a, I don't know what I'm talking Amazing. about. Amazing. Northeast what, of the country. Why are they different, John St. Farrell?
2: James's Park is just this phenomenal stadium with this incredible fan it's base. It's like a Wrigley
0: Field thing, but Newcastle gritty. United
2: have yeah. been a yo-yo club over the last 10 years or so, and I'm sure Ian would echo that. They drop down a league, they come back up, but the fans have always filled out the stadium no matter what happens. In the 90s, 90s, they almost won the league a couple of times, I think second place in a premiership in the late 90s, Ian. But until this year, as you say, something changed. People like yourself said we've had enough.
6: About 10,000 people didn't renew their season tickets. They just had enough of this appalling ownership. So everyone has been rooting for a change. It's just... If he'd given us a list of potential owners, you know, yeah. had been some probably wouldn't have been top of the list. And he definitely wouldn't have been top of the list.
3: I do have to wonder on a day like today, uh, I'm sure that, that football is, is getting you excited, uh, but I also think I'm looking right now at the NASDAQ and it's poised for its biggest oh. daily decline if it continues nearly down 2% of the year. Yeah. And we were talking about a 1% decline on Friday. Are, are economics interesting you more than football today? Or do you feel like today the sort of scare that's going on with the coronavirus doesn't affect the economics complex to the degree that people seem to be implying by the price action.
6: Yeah, I mean, th- this to me is um, a combination of a, a fear-based sell-off and also an excuse to take profits after the run that we've had in the markets over the last few months. So, uh, you know, if the market had been flat for the last three months, I suspect the sell-off would be rather smaller on the back of the, the virus story, but, you know, we've had a big run-up, so this is an opportunity to to take um, uh, to take some profits and, uh, and regroup. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, this is not an economic story at all. I mean, from an economic perspective, you know, the U.S. Actually, I've just upgraded my U.S. forecast. I'm, I'm feeling a bit more cheerful about well, things. that. Well,
0: that, you know, the that's trade right. Made,
6: substantially absorbed. Right,
0: right where I wanted to go. And, of course, this ties in with your colleague uh, Freya Beamish as well. Reframe the Pantheon growth forecast for the United States and then Freya's work for China. What's your statistic now for the United States?
6: Yeah, well, so, you know, I've just moved up my number for this year to 2% from one5 which which might not sound like a, a huge increase, but actually 2% is not far off the the growth rate that we've seen in the post-crash era. Uh, we've been a little bit stronger than that, so, that, you know, I've got some discount in, some hit from the trade war, but most of it, I think, has been absorbed. And then, uh, to your point about, uh, you know, Freya's view about um China, you know, eventually we are going to see a, a turnaround there. You know, you can see it in the PMIs, and obviously we get the next manufacturing PMIs out of China later this week. They're certainly not going down anymore. The Kaishin, the unofficial PMI from China has shot up in the last few months. We need to see that coming through in the hard data, that's for sure. But, you know, you can't look at those China numbers now and say that things are still going down. And eventually, that, you know, that ought to be transmitting to some extent to the rest of the world as well, including the U.S., even though, of course, you know, the tariffs get in the way. They're, they're a barrier to prevent, that prevents you know, full transmission of China's incipient upturn into the U.S. But they don't, um, they don't completely stop it. So, you know, I do think we're probably at the low now for the U.S. business surveys, the, other, the ISM and the PMI, which have been terrible, but I think we're probably at the low. Uh, and my guess is that the consumer is going to keep chugging on and the housing market's looking pretty great. So I, I pulled my numbers higher. And what that means ultimately is that the labor market probably continues to tighten. And I'm kind of looking at unemployment getting towards 3% by the end of the year, which in a normal wow. year, That would have the Fed raising rates, but that's
0: not going to happen. Let's narrow that. You say in the vicinity of 3.0%? Yeah, by the end of the year, yeah,
6: yeah, which would be the lowest
2: since the mid-1950s.
0: Well, yeah, I'm going to say go back to Eisenhower, John. I I literally can't frame that in my mind. The
2: the Fed has consistently underestimated how low unemployment could go without inflation or wages accelerating considerably. And Ian, as you point out, the reaction function has shifted. We could see a test of a two-handle and a Fed that doesn't even budge.
6: Well, certainly not this year, that's for sure. I mean, I think what they'd like to do is, is uh, just carry on with the, with the way they're set up now, which is to say we need a material change in the outlook to do anything, uh, and then go away, you know, from, from June and come back in December. But my point is that they might come back in December after the election, which they really don't want to be involved in, come back after the election and say, well, hey, actually 3% unemployment, you know, that, that's nobody's idea of sustainable, especially if it still looks like it might go even further down. Which, you know, three months ago looked very unlikely because yeah. the business surveys, the, all the employment numbers had weakened substantially in the surveys and the hard data haven't followed. And so it looks to me like businesses kind of, I don't know, they, no. they overestimated how bad the hit was going to be. And actually payroll growth to me maybe can hang around 150, 160, yeah. in which case unemployment will go down.
3: Ian, your optimistic view of the US economy as a direct odds of what we're seeing today in the bond market with the yield curve flattening to the most, uh, the narrowest of the year, and you're seeing yields steadily lower. What is the market getting wrong that you're getting right?
6: Oh no! I don't think the markets get anything wrong today. You know, this this is a fierce sell-off in equities, and that money's got to go somewhere. So you know, it just always goes into treasuries in this environment. We simply don't know how bad this coronavirus thing is going to be. My 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 gut feeling, my my guess. I mean, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, but my guess from what I've been reading is that actually this isn't going to be as as bad as SARS was back uh, you know, 15 years ago or so. Um, and that we're going to see a substantial rebound in, in stocks within the next couple of weeks. And that, of course, I think will then drive Treasury yields back up again. Now, if I thought yields were going to stay down here and it was going to be a yeah. much worse thing, that would be a different story. But I'm, I'm pretty optimistic.
0: Ian, what does the investment dynamic look like? I, you know, John, I, I I think back to Davos, and it really wasn't discussed all that much. Ian Shepherdson, you know, okay, there's a pickup. Does investment pick up? Yeah.
6: Well, uh some of it does. Um, you know, the residential component, I think, is, is going to grow double digit, um, you know, for, for a while. It's the business component that's, that's likely to continue to be the drag. But I think that the, the real point here is that it's not anything like as big a drag as it looked like it was going to be a few months ago. So again, like the payroll numbers have okay. been in the surveys have suggested. Yeah. So, so the CapEx orders numbers, they're not great. You know, let's be clear, they're not great. But the surveys back in the fall were telling us we should expect a meltdown. And that just really hasn't happened. So, you know, from a, from a market perspective, you've had these bad things that, that haven't happened. You've had the Fed easing rates. You've got the Fed buying 60 billion of Treasury bills every month through until the second quarter at the earliest. Um, that's a lot of liquidity and a lot of relatively good news on the macro front. So, you know, as I said, once, the, once there's some clarity on the coronavirus story, I think the market rebounds substantially. I, I don't really see it peaking until the middle of the year, at which point I think the Fed will probably stop their bill purchases.
3: Ian Shepherdson, thank you so much for being with us. Ian Shepherdson, Pantheon Macroeconomics founder and chief economist.
0: Right now, into Iowa. Into the start of the political season, it's good to speak to the gentleman that was a former economic advisor to Vice President Biden. Jared Bernstein is someone the conservatives read to get an authoritative view, a more balanced view on liberal and conservative economics. And of course, he is on the edge of legendary in uh, Washington Jared, what I find so interesting, and this was a huge topic in Davos, is can the Democrats move to the middle? Do you perceive there will be a shift at some point where Democratic Party economics moves over to the middle? I think
7: that the middle itself has moved, but if you grant that, then I think the answer is yes. I think the middle today is not the same middle it was even 10 years ago. Mainstream Democrats like Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton, uh, you know, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, they, they feel differently about things like trade agreements, fiscal policy, uh, inequality, debt and deficits than they did uh, 10 or uh, years ago. However, the difference between them and the, and the more uh, liberal branch is that they believe it's going to take incremental policies to get there. You can't leapfrog You know, the reality, I think, is where they're coming from.
6: So, Jared, how do you think the Democrats, whoever the candidate is, will run against the Trump economy?
7: That is a super uh, big challenge, and the Trump economy will unquestionably be a tailwind for the president. Uh, They'll run against it by pointing out that the Trump economy, uh, its benefits are highly unequally distributed. Uh, there are people in places who've been left behind even now in our record long expansion. Of course, the manufacturing sector and blue collar workers therein folks Trump said uh, he would directly help has uh, has really performed quite badly in, in no small part as a function of the trade war, which has Trump's fingerprints all over it. So they'll make a big distinction between macro and micro.
6: So, speaking of that trade deal, the Phase One trade deal is, uh, you know, essentially in our rearview mirror here, given, given us some perspective here. How would you view and characterize the Phase One trade deal?
7: I thought it was a big nothing burger, pretty undercooked one at that. Uh, I don't really believe that the uh, uh, the the, the China is going to comply in terms of what it's going to purchase. Uh, I think the enforcement mechanisms are very kludgy and complex. The fact that they did nothing on currency uh, seems like a big strike against it. So I just don't think there's much there. And I suspect that uh, reality will reflect that. And I think markets yeah. have uh, have partially reflected that as well.
0: Jerry, you've stayed away from the politics. You've always written just a straight economics, and it's it's an economics with great respect for labor. and and for what I'm gonna call the tradition of democratic politics. The Atlantic has been on fire. And they had a wonderful article a few days ago on the educated elite of the Democratic Party and they've lost touch with how they're gonna get elected across a broad America. And then Derek Thompson uh, writing in the Atlantic, uh, boomers have socialism, why not millennials? This is a really, really interesting article on the left. I say this with great respect, Jared. Can the Democratic Party get comfortable with the senator from Vermont?
7: You know, it's a great question. And a friend of mine was pointing out just how well Bernie Sanders did in 2016. He won 50 percent in Iowa. He won 60 percent in New Hampshire. Obviously, that's a next door neighbor of his. Um, He's actually not uh, posting those kinds of numbers now, but it's a bigger field. So I think it's an open question. My kind of working hypothesis is that one of the problems a lot of Democrats, especially the folks you're talking about, face is that we live on Twitter. And the Twitterverse is just a non-real kind of atmosphere for, I think, where Democratic politics are. I think the country, even primary voters, are more moderate than uh, you'd get if you just hung around uh, social media. So
6: are they moderate to the point where when— Elizabeth Sanders or Bernie Sanders talks about uh, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders talks about, uh, you know, kind of universal healthcare, Medicare for all. I mean, did they? Do you think the electorate is really ready for that, and maybe the economics of that?
7: I think the electorate is ready for that and ready for universal coverage. I think the difference is how fast the electorate wants uh, us to go there. So people get spooked when you tell them they're going to lose their employer coverage. Uh, and yet people really like the idea of universal coverage and a much broader government role. So I think where uh, some of the more moderate paths resonate more, at least with me, is not in where they're ultimately going but in the speed in which they get to get there i'm not sure that the dem, even the democratic electorate even the primary right, believes you can leapfrog from where we are to a system that's very different quickly right. and that a more incremental approach may be more realistic
0: jared bernstein thank you so much uh thrilled to have him on uh today mr bernstein of course writing off and you see him in the washington post particularly writing up with uh, dean baker senior fellow at the center for budget and policy administration Of course, working with Vice President Biden a number of years ago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.